Hello everybody and welcome along to another month, another webinar and we are talking about how to avoid the eight things that go wrong with property investment and I am so excited for what we're going to talk about today because we're going to talk to you about how to avoid those things that do go wrong. Now what I want to know is whether you can hear me or not, so drop down in the chat and tell me what colour shirt is Andrew wearing today? Let me know the colour of the shirt that he's got on just so I can make sure that everybody can hear us and Andrew, are they? have they got the right answer? Uh, there's, there's, always, there's always some enjoyable answers here. Well, it's, it would have been Danny and Manuel and all of the favourites who always come like along. That, that um, the meme with the, the, the dress with the gold and the silver. Oh, I've that done one? that one where it's yeah. blue or is it gold? Yeah. No, exactly what you mean. Now, we are going to rip straight into it because we've got a lot to cover tonight because we are talking all about the eight things that can go wrong in property investment. And the reason I'm so keen for it, and I'll just share my screen and show you the reason why, is that... You know, at the end of the day, there's a simple truth in property investment. If you are investing for 15 years, 10, 15 years, you're a long-term investor, over that time, something's likely to go wrong. You can avoid some of them, and you can do lots of things to try and avoid those bad things going wrong, but something can possibly go wrong, and it's what you do about it that matters to make sure that things do only get better. Now, let's rip into it, because tonight we've got a banger for you. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the whole webinar for free. We're going to send you the recording tomorrow. We get that question a lot. We are recording this. You will get it tomorrow. Any data we share, we're going to do a Q&A as well. That's going to be at the end. And also, I'm going to tell you where my updated spreadsheet is because there are some cool updates to that. Now, what I want you to do is please make sure that all of your chats, all of your messages, send that to panellists and attendees. Make sure it's selected to other attendees as well. I can see that there have been a lot of chats in there already from all of our old favourites. There really is a good community here at Property Live. And if you've got a question... Put it in there no, because somebody no, else will likely. It, oh, don't! No, I'm coming do to that. Not put it in there. Put it under. This is why people get it wrong. If you've got a question, can you put it under the questions tabs, the Q and A tab, which is down the bottom right hand side, right hand side. Um, put it in there. Just because Ed and I will be talking, waffling on, we get distracted. We'll miss one of your questions otherwise, and then we'll do our best to get through all of them at the end. But still, chit chat between yourselves yeah. while we're while we're rambling on because there really is a really cool community here at Property Live. Now, the other thing that I want to mention, just in case, you know, it's your first time coming into one of these and there are quite a few first-time uh, listeners or attendees tonight, you might be thinking, why should I listen to these two handsome gentlemen? Look, if you don't know us, we do run New Zealand's number one business podcast, Property Academy. We have just hit 3.1 million downloads and that is thanks to so many of the amazing people who are online right now who tune into that show and we're just so grateful that you do. Uh, on top of that, we also own and publish Informed Investor, New Zealand's only broad investment magazine, and we also own New Zealand Property Investment Magazine. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say we know a thing or two about property. Now, if you don't know me, I'm Ed the Economist here at Opus Partners, and I host the Property Academy podcast and invest myself. And over here, my co-host, Andrew, he's a financial advisor and managing director here at Opus, hosts the podcast with me, and he's a pretty prolific property investor. 
Now, one of the reasons we're so keen to talk about the eight things that can go wrong in property investment tonight is, you know what? Andrew's literally made every mistake in the book. <laughs> My only mistake is letting you put the slides together for this. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, he's made so many mistakes that we've actually had to write a book about it, uh, which is going to be oh, coming out later on. made up. We've heard about it for so long, Ed. <laughs> That's what everybody's thinking. <laughs> we've been talking about this for almost it's two a, years a now. It's build up. Well, I mean, it's, it's a very good book, and we've actually just sent the second uh, edit back to the publishers uh, for another round, and we're getting very, we're very close. We're pretty excited about it. Uh, there's going to be a big launch this year. I mean, save the date. We don't have it yet, but it is going to be, uh, it's going to be an event to be remembered. Fantastic. Now, let's dig into these eight things that could go wrong, and Andrew, I'm going to hand it over for you to tackle number one. Okay, so now this is probably one that's, oh, oh do I get the keyboard and the mouse? Just the keyboard. Just the keyboard. Uh, this is one that's probably on everyone's mind at the moment, market dropping. And uh, let's face it, if property just went up in a straight line, it would be pretty boring. I mean, it'd, it'd make for a nice investment, but it'd be pretty boring. What happens if you buy a property now and in 18 months' time or a year's time, it drops by... 10%, I think that's what the uh, chief economist at ANZ, our third favourite economist said, uh, drops by 10 15% and you sell it. Well, you're going to lose money. That's not a great investment. And I think the key message to begin with is if you decide to sell, if you decide to lock in that price, you are going to crystallise your losses. Now, I'll tell you a story, and um, long-time listeners of the show will remember this story. Um, I uh, built a couple of uh, turnkey investments back in 2006, 2007. Terrible time in retrospect to buy, theoretically, based on this model, because by the time they settled, they were worth a lot, when I say a lot, about $20,000, $15,000 less than what I paid for them. Now, if I panicked at that stage and went, I just, I need out of this, the newspaper's telling me it's going to drop more, and sold, I would have crystallised that loss. Now, one of the key things about property is it goes up over time. And the key part to that is, it is over time. If you decide uh, to hold on to a property long term, you can probably say with a lot of certainty that the market is going to go up. And when I say long term, I'm talking 10 years. That's kind of a golden number that I would work with because you've got a co complete property cycle there. And the key uh, way of mitigating the risk of the market dropping is just don't sell. Hold on to that property and get that uprise. Now, if anyone's thinking, oh yeah, but there's so much doom and gloom out there, tell me any time you've ever, you've ever said or, or heard someone say, I wish I'd sold that property 20 years ago. Just doesn't happen, right? Now, you may have a temporary loss on paper. You may have lost money on paper if you get a valuation or something like that. But the key thing is you make money in the end if you hold for the long term. That 10 years is a good model to use. And uh, Ed, do you want to tell us about this graph? Or? Yeah, so this comes directly from the Reserve Bank, was released earlier this year, and this is their projections of property prices. They've got about an 8.7% 
uh, projected drop. They have said they're more confident that there will be a drop as opposed to that it will be exactly 8.7%. But they're projecting some amount of drop. And look, I'd actually say a lot of that drop is already here and we are starting to see uh, pretty good deals coming about. Uh, Yeah, now uh, recently I changed my full-time role uh, away from working with investors directly to full-time working with developers because I think this year is going to be a challenging year for developers. We're already seeing it. What that means is I can really get in there and twist the knife a little bit. So what I've been doing is I've been working with developers and saying, hey, this pricing is no longer acceptable. I want this for my clients. If there's going to be a um, if there's going to be a 10% drop, I want to get a deal now so that rather than wait for a market correction, we actually get a, a solid discount. And in fact, just before I jumped on uh, this webinar tonight, I was on the phone to um, one of the large developers that we recommend to investors and uh, renegotiating all of his pricing. Uh, and so I actually think... What are you getting off? They want to know prices. Uh, that development, we're talking somewhere between 50 to, in some cases, it was a... In one case, there was 150k off what he wanted. 158, 150k, 150k, yeah, 150 thousand dollars. So anywhere between 50 thousand and 150 thousand. Now these are higher end properties in Auckland, so it's not the same if you're buying a, a property in Christchurch. But in Christchurch, it might be. $50,000 off, which is not, not uncommon. So there are some really, really good deals. And I think if you can spot uh, a, a location that's in the correct or, or in the best, uh, an opportune time in its property cycle and get a deal, then you just go ahead and do it. You don't, you don't worry about what might happen. You lock in what can happen. And what I really want to do is put some more practicalities around this and show you what some decisions might have looked like, say, 15, but 16 years this ago. Is, I mean, the property I was talking about before wasn't in Auckland, but say you'd bought in Auckland at the peak, which is around 2006, and you'd seen the trough, property prices were down 11%. So I can understand some newbie investor mentality or, or if you're investing just because everyone else was doing it and your uncle George told you it was a good idea and the property price of the of the house that you bought, the investment that you bought, dropped 11%, I can understand that panic. But if you were, if you were savvy enough to see that right through to today or 2016, property prices were up then 95%. So all of a sudden, that down 11%, doesn't seem that bad. You'd almost doubled in value. I think the key thing, message there is really about, A, making sure that you hold. And obviously, can we just acknowledge that Braveheart is one of the greatest I've movies never seen of all it. time? I've never seen it. We're going on a date. Oh. <laughs> Any <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> and then, uh, no, we actually should see it because it's really good. But holding for the long term is really what you want to be going for. And actually, one thing that I want to do, if we just flick back to me for a second okay. and pass me back my keyboard, I want to run a bit of a poll at the moment and I want to see how you guys are feeling right now. So I'm going to put a wee poll across your screens and And what I'm going to ask you is, well, how do you guys feel about the property market right now? What's your kind of mentality? So I'm going to launch this. And what it says is, how are you feeling about the market right now? Uh, Is there either deals to be done? Uh, Are you kind of 
50-50, oh, you're a sorry, bit unsure. I just, I, <laughs> Did you stop the poll? Honestly, mate, you're terrible. He actually is terrible. You, you shouldn't give me this kind of power because you know I can't Just stop control. touching the computer. It's actually really bad. Here these lovely people are trying to enjoy their night, listening to oh, Property sorry. Live, thinking this is a professional production, <laughs> and here you are. Now, what I want to know is... Are there deals to be done? Are you 50-50, you're not sure, or you're going to sit this one out, hey, right now is not the right time for you to be investing. I want to get a sense of where you guys are feeling. And once we get probably about 500-odd answers of you guys saying where you're feeling, that's when we will relaunch that poll, show you guys where we're at. Awesome. Danny said it will fire Andrew. Danny, if I had that sort of power, (laughs) I quite possibly might. Oh, honestly, like you'd last a day without me. Okay, well, I'm going to end that poll now, and I'm going to share that res- or, or that across your screen. So 60% of you are saying there are deals to be done right now. About 30% of you, 3 in 10, you guys are saying, you know what, I'm not, right, I'm not sure right now. I'm 50-50, and probably about 12% of you now are saying, I'm going to sit this one out. Not right time for me. That's cool. Really good to see where you guys are at right now. Now, let's launch back into it, Andrew, because after somebody uh, decides that, yes, holding is what I want to do, I think some people also need to think about, well, what if I'm forced to sell? What if I'm unable to hold because... I lose my job, for instance. Yeah, and this is a this is a really important consideration when you get into investing. Um, often you'll borrow a hundred percent, and you'll often be making a top up. If you lose your job and you can't make your contribution. What are you? How are you going to top up your rental property? How are you going to be able to hold and weather that storm? Because again, we often talk about weathering the storm. You want to be able to hold for this long term. But if life puts a blip uh, on the radar, what what are you going to do now? Um, I remember actually an investor that I worked with in Wellington ringing me in a mad panic one time because the market probably wasn't an opportune time for him to sell, or it certainly wasn't compared to now, and uh, he got made redundant, and it was quite scary for him. Now, I remember saying, look, I'll, I'll go back to the office, I'll check your file, I'll come back to you, and I went back to the office and had a look, and sure enough... I'd put in place a revolving credit facility, a a rental buffer account, if anyone's ever heard me waffle on about those, where he had five years worth of his contributions available at any time if he ever needed it. So what did that mean for him? Well, as, as it happened, he got a new job within a month anyway, so it didn't actually it didn't actually have to even dip into that money. But having that money available meant that his family could just carry on they didn't have to make their contribution for that month. They knew that they had an insurance policy to get them through that hard time. And that is why we offered recommend setting up some form of revolving credit, some sort of line of credit before you lose your job. That's the important thing. Because if you unfortunately do get made redundant, then it's going to be really difficult to go to the bank and then convince them to advance you more credit because that income that you're going to use to, to get that loan approved, hey, it's looking a bit more shaky you now. You get it at the start. you got to get it at the start. Now, let's come across to the second thing that sometimes goes wrong, <laughs> which is bad tenants. Now, let me just be clear. 
not every vast majority <laughs> of tenants do not look like this. This is just our designer who's having a good time, by the way. I'm not suggesting all tenants are like that. But sometimes bad things do happen, oh. really unfortunately. And this is a case of a New Zealand property that unfortunately, you know, obviously was not left in the best condition. <laughs> so what colour's the carpet? Not good. So how can you protect yourself from bad tenants. And I think the first thing you can do as an investor is all in your product selection. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you start investing in property, you've got a decision to make about what sort of properties you want to invest in. Now, some investors will decide to invest in new builds that have decent spec. Others, and actually, you probably can't see how uh, how bad the property on the right actually looks because it's pretty run down and needs some work. But if you're purchasing properties that you know, aren't going to attract a tenant of decent quality, somebody who's going to look after the place, then you know what, that's when you're going to be more likely to attract a, a lower quality of tenant. Now look, let me be clear, if you were to buy a rundown property, do it up, renovate it, make it look great, hey, you can still attract really good tenants. But I'm just trying to say, don't expect to buy a lower quality product and then get a premium tenant. Because one of the biggest decisions you can make around attracting your customer, because your tenant is your customer, is going to be what you decide to buy, what you decide to invest in, because that's the product that you're essentially selling and you want to attract a, a, a more premium tenant in some instances if you're worried about that. Now, I've got some other things you can do. Of course, you could also use a property manager. This is what I like to do because they are going to screen the tenants. And actually, that's a really good time to talk about running proper background checks on your tenants. And by proper background checks, I mean three things. Let me tell you about them. The first thing that you want to think about is a prior tenancy check. So by that, I mean your property manager should call up previous landlords, previous people that, that your tenants or your prospective tenants have uh, rented off and say, were they good tenants? Did they look after the place? Did they leave it in bad condition? Hey, that's something really obvious that sometimes gets missed if people rent uh, or self-manage their own property. So prior tenancy check, calling up those previous landlords, really, really important. And one trick I think that is really important is to just get a sense of, is this really a landlord? Is it another property manager or is it somebody's mate who's kind of trying to do them a favour by pretending to be a prior landlord. Second thing is credit checks. And by this, I mean your property manager should be going in and saying, you know, have these prospective tenants that you're thinking of renting to, you know, have they defaulted on any payments? Are they way behind and they haven't paid their power bill in the last five months? Uh, are there a whole heap of Vodafone bills that perhaps they haven't paid? Now, look, I've got nothing against anybody who unfortunately does get behind. And look, that is a really tough thing if you do get behind on your finances. But what you want to be making sure as a responsible landlord is making sure that if you're going to rent a place to somebody for $500 or $600 a week, you don't want to put them in any more financial stress because it's going to be bad for you, it's going to be bad for the tenant. So doing a credit check, really, really important just to make sure that, hey, can they actually afford this? And while I'm speaking of that, employment checks are really important. This is to make sure that if the tenant has said, yes, I work for XYZ company, that hey, they actually do. Again, for me, it's not about trying to dig too deep into your tenant situation. You want to make sure that, hey, if they can afford this thing and they're going to be good tenants, that 
they're going to rent it and you can leave them to it. They can enjoy this property and have the acquired enjoyment of that, live their lives. So that's what you really want. But you don't want to be renting to someone that is going to be under financial stress by renting your property. And that's why I recommend doing these three checks, even though to some people that might seem a wee bit intrusive, but it's really only, important. It's only intrusive until your mortgage doesn't get paid. I can tell you that. Um, right, something goes wrong with the building is number three. So um, let's just talk about some of the uh, the timeline of building issues uh, historically. So pre-1950s, we had electrical wiring issues, which is why nowadays if you apply for insurance, they'll ask when your house, uh, that when the electrical work was done. Then of course between the 50s and 60s we had lead based paint, the kind of thing that Ed would lick as a child um, and bore and dry rot that's why I'm special, Andrew. You know, that's one of the reasons. 70s to 80s, uh, hi Ali if you're watching, uh, lots of asbestos use, which I mean, while it's, uh, uh, while it's stationary isn't really an issue, but if you go and rip it off a wall like I did, uh, that's when it can cause you grief. 90s to 04, that was probably one of the worst. That's when we've got the leaky home saga, so monolithic cladding. Um, and today, you know, with new builds, there, there may be... There may be something different. Maybe that one day we'll discover that jib is no good. Now, if anyone is watching from James Hardy, you know where to send the legal letters. Um, but uh, all I'm saying is there's always the unknown. But one of the common things that we see is, uh, is showers. So uh, it's not the shower itself, but often the shower trap. So this is where it has, hasn't actually been installed to the wastewater. And of course, what happens is water ends up underneath your house. And I actually had uh, one of my investors end up with a property by a major building company um, and this wasn't attached at all and the tenants were complaining about mould and mildew and uh, uh, the property managers thought that it was just a case of they needed to um, air out the property more which often often tenants might leave the, uh, the uh, curtain shut a lot longer or they might leave the window shut just seems to be the way it is and th they were blaming that as it turns out they just had um, litres and litres of water pouring under the house every day. So we got it all fixed, by the way. One of the issues that isn't as serious as that, but still can be an issue for new builds, is in again in the showers, if the sealant underneath just hasn't been sealed properly and water comes yeah. up behind the wall. And if you've got, you know, you might have five uh, people living in a house, a four-bedroom house potentially, and, uh, you know, they might be having a couple of showers. How many showers a day do you have? One to two. One to two? That's disgusting. You have to have two. We should be doing a poll on this. Um, <laughs> anyway, keep going. I think people are going to be with me because, you know, you, the power's expensive these days, Andrew. Morning or night? Well, it depends. Oh, it's no, morning, morning. Anyway, we'll talk about this later at dinner. Um, right, so some of the things that we often find in new builds. Number one is windows not closing properly so or, or opening properly. They might be sticking. Uh, second one. Ed, is doors not hung correctly? So again, you know, they might be dragging on carpet and you want to deal with this so it doesn't wear the carpet. And three is the showers. And that that is a real problem. So how do you avoid this kind of thing? Or how do you manage this uh, risk? So with every build in New Zealand now, there's a 12-month defects period and, and that's required by law so a developer or a builder has to remedy any defects uh, that come up within that first 12 months period. Now you still uh, have a, a building warranty and you still got warranty over your building products for 10 years, up to 10 years but for the kind of niggly things like a plug socket not working or um, a toilet roll holder coming loose, these all fall under the 12 month defects period. And can I ask you Andrew, because I remember we had a really interesting discussion once 
questions around whether you as the investor have uh, the 12-month defects period is kind of your responsibility versus the builder owing that to the developer. The, 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 uh, oh, how do you mean? I'm off my head, mate. Yeah, I'm off my are. head. I it's started it, and I thought this is not a good one. <laughs> just carried on, though. I just carried on, though. <laughs> now, let's so get to think, number two. I think a really important thing is to do a, a really thorough pre-settlement inspection. So the kind of thing that we would do with uh, any investors that work with us is we, uh, uh, either one of our team or one of the property management team, would go through with a client and just go and eyeball everything. And actually, we've got a checklist on this on our website, and I think we've done a podcast on it. There is a very... Very, very thorough article about how to right. do this on our website. Yeah. Take your hair dryer, we say. Yeah, take your hair dryer, that's right. So if you're doing this yourself, the reason you take your hair dryer is because you plug it in on all the plug sockets, you make sure that they're all working, because these are things that you're not going to pick up until you live in a property, but that's why you have that 12-month defect period. Just one note on the 12-month defect period, because I was actually having this conversation with um, our compliance manager, Vanessa, today. So um, part of part of uh, our ongoing support for investors is that we want to be really tough on developers getting back and doing these jobs. Now, it can be a little bit frustrating for investors sometimes. They go through and do a pre-settlement inspection and they identify nine items. Let's say they're not that urgent. They're not that urgent. They're just, you know, there's some paint um, dripped on the carpet that needs to be fixed and, uh, uh, you know, just little things. The developer technically has 12 months to fix that. So often what you'll find is they might come out and do it in batches because they don't want to be um, coming and doing nine of them now and then doing another one next month and another one next month. So what we've actually done is um, set up a service level agreement with our developers saying we get to determine whether or not something is urgent or can, can wait till, you know, a three-month period, for example. Okay, great. And what's number three and four that people can do to protect themselves? Look, use a reputable developer. So make sure you're using someone that actually has a reputation they want to stand behind. If you're using a developer who's um, doing this as a part-time job, they've got another job, they don't actually care if someone complains or puts in the newspaper their name, say, Edward, Edward McKnight Developments, you know, they don't care. And so they're probably less likely to do the right thing by a purchaser. Um, if you're working with someone like a Stonewood Homes, for example, you know, they have a reputation to uphold, so they're going to make sure, they're going to err on the side of what's best for the investor or the purchaser. And let's come to number four, because I this oh, is a really interesting one for this people. this is a big one. Get a building inspection, and this is actually something that we've been talking about, whether or not we just do this by default as part of our process. Make sure that we actually get an independent third party who knows what to look for, a Kyle Brooklyn of the world. Now, if you don't listen to the Property Academy podcast, what are you doing? But um, go back and listen to the previous episodes with Pro, uh, with Kyle Brooklyn, who is um, uh, based in Canterbury. He does a lot of building inspections for our investors or, or um, owner-occupiers, and he'll go through and test everything, the things you would never even think of. So uh, take us through the example, though, Andrew, because there was a development that some of the investors we'd worked with who were buying into, and we'd actually organised for a building inspector to go through. Are you talking You'd, about in Auckland? Yes, I am. Ah, and I want you to talk about some of the things that they found because you know what? You buy a new build, you think, oh, it's going to be new. It's going to be all good, mate. But actually, sometimes there is human error. And I was really surprised at what was found by that building inspector. Well, um, so Kyle, we actually flew Kyle to uh, Auckland because there was a development um, that we'd recommended. I'd purchased it. Uh, and the, the builder 
just didn't do a good job. We were getting delay. Uh, we were getting delays in uh, our updates. There were just warning signs, and so to check that uh, all of our investors were getting a a, a product that was going to stand the test of time, we actually got Kyle up there. And one of the things that he um, found that I was um, horrified about was that there was scaffolding, is this what you're talking about, left on the roof of the development. So, so big metal bars. Big me- no, 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 not just that, but the planks. Oh, the so big planks. They're taken apart and put them on the roof. Yeah, <laughs> we're not just doing <laughs> this. And so, um, uh, so these kind of things. And if you see that, you know there's probably some other loose ends. Now, that particular developer, so that development's finished, Um, everyone's taken position, including myself, there are still some loose ends under that um, 12-month building warranty that... um I guess with so, with someone like us, we're the squeaky wheel. So I have probably been the worst nightmare from that for that building company. Um, one one uh, actually email that I sent a few weeks ago said, "Hey, if you don't come back to me today, I'm going to be in Auckland tomorrow. So I'll be stopping past your offices uh, office with a uh, with a, uh, a reporter from Stuff, and we'll just do an article on it. Anyway, that they, they got the job done." Okay, well, let's come across to the next one that I want to talk, tell you about, which is what happens if the developer goes under. Now, obviously, this is if you are uh, uh, use it buying a new build as well. So what happens in that instance if a developer does go broke? Well, let me tell you about what should happen. Let's say you buy a new build and you pay a deposit. You might think, well, that goes towards the developer. But what happens if they go bankrupt? Dun, dun, dun. That's what happened with Blue Chip back in the last uh, the last GFC, where unfortunately deposits paid by investors to developers actually went to the developer. So they were using that. When the developer then went broke, people weren't able to get their deposits back. So let me show you what should happen instead. When you buy a new build and you pay your developer deposit, that money should go to a solicitor's trust account. Now, this isn't always the case, so I want you to check this with your solicitors, whether you buy a new build through us or somewhere else, make sure that money is being paid into a solicitor's trust account and doesn't go to the developer. Now, that will be held on behalf of the developer and will help them get the money from the bank or wherever they're getting their finance from so they can complete the development. But what that means, if it's held at a solicitor's trust account, is if the developer does go broke, you're going to get your deposit back. If for some reason the development doesn't go ahead, you'll get your deposit back. And so it's really important that if you're... interest. Yes, that's correct. So it's really important that if you're putting away 70 grand as a development deposit, then you're putting that at risk that you do get it back. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's all hunky-dory and, hey, if the developer goes broke, doesn't matter that much. Well, it can matter a bit, and I'll tell you why that can be the case. And it really comes down to opportunity cost. So let's say that these are property prices generally, and you signed up to buy a property for 650 k now, by the time that that property's built, maybe the market's appreciated it a bit, and this certainly has happened for some people on the on the webinar tonight. You know, property prices might have increased. Now, what's the issue if the developer does unfortunately go broke? Well, the first issue is 
You've lost out on the equity gain. Hey, you thought you were going to settle on this property and it was going to be worth 750k and you were only going to pay 650k because that's what you signed the contract for. Well, if the development doesn't go ahead, sweet, you got your deposit back, but you lost out on the 100k gain. So that's one of the main issues of why you don't want to invest with a developer who unfortunately goes broke. Second thing as well is, hey, if that's the case, properties are now more expensive. Instead of being able to buy that property for 650k, you're now paying 750. So obviously, if you're going to go ahead and invest again, that can become a bit more of an issue. So really important that we are thinking about not just who the developer is, do they have a good reputation, but do they have the dosh to be able to complete this development? Or are they going to struggle a wee bit. Now, there are two main things, and I'll get your opinion on this in a minute, actually, Andrew, but two main things to avoid broke developers or developers before they go broke. First of all, work with somebody with perhaps a bit of scale, somebody who's a bit reputable. And the second thing of all is make sure they've actually got some dosh behind them. Now, let me ask you, Andrew, if somebody listening to this webinar tonight wants to go ahead and invest in new builds on their own, not interested in using anybody, they're going to go by themselves, how do they figure out? What are some things they can do to figure out whether the developer has some dosh behind them to complete that development? Well, I can probably only tell you what I do in my role. Um, You're probably going to struggle to do this yourself because when you're buying a property or two properties off a developer you don't have the power of numbers but just to give you an idea of the kind of the level of detail that we'll go into so uh, often what I'll do is I'll ask for um, the costings of a project um, I'll look at what the quantity surveyor have said I'll look at um, what their funding line is so I'll actually want to see some information from um, particularly we're going into more more detail on this at the moment how many pre-sales do you need to satisfy your financier um, the good thing is because of our volume now um, we have a good relationship with a lot of developer financiers, so I can ring up a lot of them and say, hey, look, this guy's approached me, what is he like? And they'll say, oh, no, he's, he's dreaming, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing and he's got no dough, um, and we'll have an off-record conversation. Um, I, I think that that's probably... Um, going to need to happen more and more, which again, why I'm focusing more on that role uh, within the business. Um, as an individual, uh, look, to be honest, you you, you kind of can't because... You but know, you can ask. You can at least have a go and ask, you know, yeah. at what point is your finance going to be locked in? Sure. I mean, you've got about as much chance as when you ask me to go out on a date with you, though. Um, I think that um, you, you can... Um, you maybe can look at kind of a brand, um, but then you've got to be really careful there because there are a lot of there are some big brands out there at the moment that would make me very nervous buying from. So let's come across to issue number five, problem number five, which is about if it can be hard to get a tenant once the property is built. Tell us all about this. So Andrew. this is a development in Hamilton. Eighty properties finished in one time. If they're all going to be rented out to students or, or the same type of tenants, then you've got eighty plus properties all on the market at the same time looking for the same type of tenant. Now this is if they were all purchased by property investors yep. and they are all released at the same time. So <laughs> perhaps that rental market might not be able to absorb that many properties. Correct. What are you giggling about? <laughs> Phoebe said, if they have private planes and Rolls Royces. <laughs> no comment, Your Honour. Um, uh, right, how to find a tenant quickly. So 
the first one might sound obvious, advertise as quickly as possible, but you might not, it might actually be a lot harder than what you think. So if you're advertising a property yourself, you're not using a property manager. One thing that I've seen a lot of newbie investors get caught up uh, with is if they haven't actually agreed prior access. So um, the property's complete, the code of compliance is issued, you're getting ready to settle, and you've got two weeks till settlement. Well, the developer doesn't necessarily have to give you access to that site to actually show people through that property. And it's really hard to uh, to rent out a property if you can't show someone uh, what's, what it's actually like. So that's something that, again, you really want to make sure you're negotiating or or you're using someone that's negotiating that for you so that you do have access to uh, advertise that property and show that property before settlement because it could be the difference between a week vacancy or four weeks vacancy. So it could be about $1,500 perhaps yeah. that you lose out because of that. And the other thing as well is getting that early access so that you are able to take Good quality marketing photos of that property as well if you're renting it out. That's something that, again, until you settle, you don't own the property. So being able to negotiate that if you're buying a new build, or actually if you're buying an existing property as well, you might be able to negotiate that early access to show some tenants through, to take some good quality marketing photos so you can start advertising that property. And again, I think this is another point where I think using a property manager is key. So... um, some of the things, I, I, I remember, for those of you that are long-term listeners of the show, you'll know that I've harped on about Rolleston for a long while. Um, what you probably haven't heard, because we didn't have a podcast back then, is that I was doing it years and years ago, back when, you know, you pay four fifty for a, for a house out there, maybe even 400 for a house out there, and the rents were pretty soft. It would take a few weeks, four weeks, five weeks maybe, to find a tenant. And so what we did at Venture is we were quite proactive, so we would um, go and put signs up at the supermarkets, but we put the, them in the supermarkets locally, but also in Hornby, which is you know 10, 15 minutes down the road, so that we were attracting people from a different area to move there. Then we did some um, uh, targeted advertising, so if we knew that you lived in Hornby and you were a tenant, we would um, blast you with ads for Rollison new houses for the same sort of money. Okay, how interesting. Now let's come across to the second way you might be able to find a tenant relatively quickly. I think if you buy in a project where there's a good mix of owner-occupiers and investors, that means that you're not going to all be competing for the same type of person and also... Oh yeah, and also maybe different types of products. So you might have three bedroom townhouses, four bedroom townhouses, two bedroom townhouses, some apartments, some standalone houses, all within one development. Again, then your 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 competition is less because you you've got different people that you're appealing to. Do you know what the other thing I want to tell you about is also stages of a development. Yes. So you might look at a project that a developer is putting together, and you might say oh my gosh, there's 200 properties that are going to get built as part of this development. How am I going to compete and get a tenant by the time these are all built? But sometimes what you might find is, well, that's divvied up into four different stages. So it might be 50 in one quarter and then three months later another 50 come to market, 12 months later another 50 get released, get completed and then are all looking for tenants and then another 50 finally. So I think one thing to understand is first of all, guess how many are being sold to owner-occupiers, so 
properties that won't be looking for tenants once everything's completed, but also how many are actually going to be coming to market at each time looking for tenants? And then the question is, well, can that suburb, can that rental market absorb those extra tenants and absorb those extra properties? I think that's really important. Now, coming across to number three, I love this one. One of my favourites. So just differentiate your property. Now, um, I've seen uh, uh, investors put um, extra appliances in. I've seen them put um, e-bikes in the property. Um, I've seen them just um, put a few extra nice features in there. And it doesn't have to be a lot. I'm not talking spending a lot of money, but just make yours stand out a little bit from the crowd. Fantastic. Now let's come across to problem number six. Again, one of my favourites. The property has poor cash flow. They're all your favourites. I just, I get so excited. Every episode's going to be a banger and they're all your favourite. This is why you can't have kids. You've (laughs) got to choose a favourite. Oh yeah, I don't think that'd be an issue. You just have one and then there's a favourite by default. Now let me tell you about properties that potentially have poor cash flow. And we've got to come back to basics actually for a moment. So why might a property have poor cash flow? Let's just remind ourselves about how we calculate this. It's your rent minus your mortgage payments minus all of your operating costs. So your rates, maintenance, insurance, all of those kinds of things, your accounting. So if you're a first-time property investor, never heard anything about property before, that's cool. This is how you'd calculate the cash flow of it. And the really interesting thing is, let's say that you had 25k of rent coming in, 20k of mortgage costs, and 10k worth of operating costs. Well, what have you got? You got 25k coming in, and you've got 30k going out. So your cash flow is negative five per year, $96 a week is a top up required. Look at current interest rates, if you're investing in properties, uh, new build properties, hey, that's probably quite realistic in today's market. But let's say that you had purchased this property a wee while ago. And let's say that you hadn't been keeping up with increasing the rent by the market rate. Now that interest rates are increasing, that could become a bit of an issue. So let's say that you were only getting 20k worth of rent because you hadn't been keeping up with the market. Well, if you've got 20k of rent coming in and 30k of costs going out, you're now negative 10k a year. Now, that's $192 a week that you're going to have to put into this property. Now let's say that, hey, it gets even worse because you're on principal and interest. Your mortgage costs are now 28 k per year, and this is based on a 500 k mortgage. Well, based on these numbers, now you're negative 18 k per year and minus $346 per week. Now that's probably going to start to worry you quite a bit. And I think the really interesting thing here is that It can just come down to how you've set your property up. So let's talk about a couple of ways to improve the cash flow of a property. Look, the big one, and I can't believe that about 60% of new mortgages drawn by down by investors are actually on principal and interest. Did you know that? That's crazy. That's correct. Three in five loans to investors are principal and interest. Well, look, if you've got your own home, If you've got your own mortgage secured against your own home, then you know what? Focusing on paying down that principal and interest loan on your own home, your own mortgage, that often is the better better, uh, decision. Seek personalised financial advice. So deciding (laughs) to go on interest only for your investment properties, you know, that often can be a way to improve that cash flow and a way that frequently do with most of the investors we work with here at Opus. The other thing you can do, of course, is invest in both growth and yield properties. So let's say that you've got a property that is really geared for growth, and it's going to cost you 100 bucks a week. Well, 
Investing in a property as well, a yield-based property that brings in $100 a week, that can help offset that because you've got $100 coming in, $100 going out, then hey, it nets out, it zeroes out that portfolio. So investing in a range of properties certainly can help that. And the third one that I want to tell you about is increasing that rent regularly to the market rate, up to the market rate that your tenants would otherwise be paying at another property if they decided to leave. I think the combination of those three things is really going to help you out. Uh, And actually, we've just recorded, Andrew, an episode which is coming out in the next week all about how my property is negatively geared. And this one is one that was quite low yielding. And we go through about eight different reasons why that might be the case and seven different things you can do to help combat that. Now, let me be clear. I've got nothing against negative gearing. A lot of investors who are starting out and who are purchasing property, you know, those properties do require a top-up. As Andrew often says, name me an investment you don't have to put money into. But the key thing is here, if it's heavily negatively geared, if it's keeping you up at night, if it's stopping you from growing your investment portfolio further, that's where you might start to look at that cash flow. And, you know, there are some reasons why a property might have really poor cash flow that are kind of a bit uh, uh, unusual. For instance, if the body corporate is particularly high, I remember we've talked previously about an apartment, I think it was two-bedroom apartment, uh, up in Auckland that had a body corporate of 55 k Yeah, I've seen even bigger ones in Wellington, uh, one where it was 12000 a year. Enormous. So it could be some sort of property like that, And if that is the case, you might decide to do something with it. Now, let's come across to number seven. Now, this is a big one. More and more regulation. Oh, really? (sighs) So, there are three certainties in life. Death, taxes, and... Increasing regulation in the New Zealand property market. Well, maybe for another 18 months. Um, And (laughs) is this where you want to run a poll? No, we're not running it. Oh, no, the poll is coming, but oh, it will come. Look, um, there, for any investors that have been in the uh, industry for a while, it's been a whirlwind of a couple of years. We have um, seen more regulation changes um, than I've ever seen. Um, interest deductibility. Now, how a lot of people have been adapting to that is that they've been looking at new builds or um, new build conversions. So um, changing their property, splitting it off into two, and then getting two new code of compliances. Or improving their cash flow by renovating. So, of course, new builds are exempt from the interest deductibility regulation, woohoo, um, and and obviously by renovating, then that generates enough cash flow to cover the extra tax, but you are paying extra tax. And I think the key thing here that we're just trying to get across is that as new regulation comes up, and this can often be something that's seen as a bit of a problem by some investors, the key message is all about how you adapt to it. Now, yeah. that is actually one of my little, <laughs> I'm not going to say favourite, but it's one of my, my <laughs> pet projects. You know, if regulation comes out, what's the game plan to respond to it? That's the question. What are we going to do? So with interest deductibility, there are ways to adapt to it. And similarly, let's talk about another piece of regulation. So LVR restrictions. Um, Obviously, again, people have adapted by buying new builds or renovating to free up uh, more equity, create more equity, and then the LVRs don't matter as much. Going to give the explanation there. And so new builds are obviously exempt from LVR restrictions, and obviously if you improve your equity, then that gives you more uh, uh, ability to leverage off and and purchase more investments. Oh, and let's not forget about the old clanger that got thrown us at, at the end of last the year. The DTIs. I, I mean, I thought we said that wasn't going to happen. 
Oh, we've said a lot of things <laughs> on this show, Andrew. Look, DTIs, um, again, the way that people are adapting around that or likely to adapt, we've actually got some legislation around this, new builds, and again, renovating to improve cash flow, and then, it, then I guess it doesn't matter. Now, I think probably one of the key messages here, so I've been investing for longer than you think by looking at me, obviously. It's um, all that Botox working for you, Andrew. Never heard of her. Um, and one of the things that I've realised is um, investing in property in your early days can be quite scary, particularly because you're, you're, you're playing with your financial future, um, you're, you're putting a lot of money on the line, putting a lot of the bank's money on the line, you're making contributions, and then, of course, you, you feel like you're doing something to get ahead, and then this government, cha- or government changes things, and all of a sudden you feel like you're on the back foot again. One thing I would say to any investor, whether or not you're new to this or you've been around for a while, is just stay the course. Um, Have the course figured out and stay the course because there is always a way around it and the market always corrects over time. So with a lot of the changes that we've seen over the last week, while Ed and I said it, there's going to be uh, massive rental increases because there'll be fewer rental properties available. It's harder for a private landlord now. What are we seeing? We're seeing every second article at the moment is about poor Jimmy who's just had an $80 rental increase. And whilst I feel sorry for Jimmy, it's not Jimmy's fault. It's the government's fault for putting all this increased regulation. And actually, that's something in private property, our weekly newsletter that goes out, uh, that we've actually been discussing over the last couple of weeks, where in Canterbury, rents are up about 9% year on year, according to the Trade Me Rental Price Index. Down in Southland, would you believe it, 14.3%, I believe I've seen the numbers up. So we are seeing some pretty serious rental increases. Now, the question I have for you, and we're going to put a poll across your screen again, is what is going to be your response to regulation? What's your response to what's happening at the moment? And I'm going to launch that across your screen. Andrew, do not stop it. Um, Is it that you're going to start investing in new builds, which tend to be exempt? Are you going to renovate to increase cash flow or equity? Are you going to stop growing your portfolio? Or are you going to do something else? Now, if you are going to do something else, let us know what that happens to be down in the chat so that you know perhaps we can see some of them. We might get some new ideas. And actually, just while we're doing that, one thing that I want to mention is that there are two strategies that really work in today's market. And while we often talk a lot about new builds, We're not just about new builds. We've got a whole company that actually helps people uh, renovate properties. But the two strategies that really make sense for long-term property investors is new builds, because they're exempt from a whole heap of stuff. Uh, Secondly, renovating to increase both cash flow and equity. And you know what? I'll give you a third one as well. If you're investing with lots of cash at the moment, that's a way to get around the DTIs, the LVRs, and of course, interest deductibility as well, because that's a tax on mortgages. Uh, Unfortunate thing about that, most of us don't have boatloads and boatloads of cash to invest in property, so we're getting mortgages. So let's take a little look-see then at... What you guys are saying. I'm oh, going to end that poll. And there's a good one from Jane. Um, Jane said sell off some properties so they have less mortgage. That was a, and that one that that one that we'd missed out on that poll, but that is a common um, theme at the moment. Fantastic. I'm going to end that poll now, and I'm going to share <laughs> the results with you all. So about 70% of you are saying, hey, look, yes, you're keen to invest in some new builds. Uh, 18% of you, hey, you're renovations focused. You're going to get some cash flow, get some equity by renovating. Uh, only 4% of you, I think this is pretty positive actually, Andrew, are saying, you know what, I'm going to stop growing my portfolio. Now, look, I'm not I'm not being mean to you. It, sometimes 
stopping growing your portfolio can absolutely be the right decision to make. But it's really good to see that there are people who are still keen to grow their portfolios. That's just the point that I'm trying to make there. And 23 of you are doing something else. I'm going to stop sharing that now. Now, let's get into the final thing that we want to ask you about, which is what if you've bought a bad investment? Oh, this is the one I care most about. Now, <laughs> what you need to know... I like how you're using euphemisms now for saying it's your favourite. So there are, for the 70% of you, and actually for anybody who's looking at investing in property, you need to know not every property is a good property. Not every property is a good investment. And while we often say on the show, on these webinars, hey, investing in property, hey, it's a good thing to do if it's the right thing for you. Now, not every property, though, is a good investment. Not every new build is a good investment just because there are a whole heap of exemptions. And I want to give you a, a real example. So here's an example of a property, 915k in Henderson at Auckland, two bed, two bath, no car park. And it was priced at 915 last time I looked at the numbers. Now, when I ran this specific property through my calculator, and I'm going to show you my spreadsheet in a second, uh, didn't get the best results, even though it's a new build, even though it's in a pretty good location. Now, if I compare that to something that I'm a bit more interested in, this is three beds, one bath, one garage, priced at 859k. Now, for you guys who don't live in Auckland, these are both in West Auckland, not that far away from each other. But when you run the numbers on it, the property on your left, the Henderson property, 252% ROI. Now, this is based on the numbers that we like to use, the way we like to run numbers, and I'll show you that in a second. The one on your right, the Glen Eden property, 402% ROI. Now, why would that be such a difference? It's because the Henderson property was only renting for 525, 535, I think it was. Really low gross yields, though. Really low yields there. And the cash flow of that property not great. Compare that to the Glen Eden. What were those renting for? The three beds. I think they're $700,000. Yeah. Sorry, $700. About $700 a week. So you're getting about 165 call it, $165 extra a week in rent in a similar location, but paying less for it, and so therefore have a lower mortgage. So I'm just trying to give you guys a, a, a bit of a comparison. We don't need to tell you who the developers were. That's not what this is about. It's just to show you that when you look at it, not every property, not every new build is a good investment. Now, you might be wondering, well, where have these numbers come from? And if you haven't seen it, what I want to let you know about is my ROI spreadsheet because this is one way you are able to stay away from bad investments. Now, if you haven't downloaded it, Go and do it now. opuspartners.co.nz slash ROI. You can download it absolutely for free. I've seen other ones charging, you know, other companies charging maybe $40 for their spreadsheets. I've got to tell you, I think ours is pretty tops and I'm pretty proud that we give it away for free. Now, what this is going to do is you're going to be able to create pretty robust 15-year uh, cash flow forecasts on your properties, whether it's existing, whether it's new builds, whatever the tax situation happens to be, it calculates all of that. This is going to help you figure out what's a good investment and what's a bad investment. But the spreadsheet alone will not do it for you. You also want to be looking at a range of developments. So it's all very well saying this property's good, this property's bad, but how do you get to that situation? You've got to run multiple properties through it. 
You've got to look at multiple developers. You can't just look at one because this is going to tell you, well, which is better if you are keen to invest in property. And do you know what, Andrew? That's why I always think that when investors come through and work with our property partners here at Opus, always like to show them two or three properties so they can get a sense of how things stack up. I think that is really important. And the third thing that I reckon that you should do is lean on expertise. So let's say that you've never invested in property before, but you've got a mate who owns 15 well, if you've got a mate who owns 15, they're probably a very good person to talk to, especially if they're active in today's market. Hey, look, I don't have many friends except for Andrew who own 15 properties, and that's why you might also like to lean on experts, people who actually do this for a living. That's another way that you might be able to stay away from those bad investments. But look, between the spreadsheet and looking at a range of developments, you absolutely can do that on your own. If you want to lean on others' expertise, that could be a good thing. Now, let's wrap it up here. The eight things that can and do go wrong in property investment. And I'm sure that there will be lots of other things that we'll talk about in the Q&A section as well, Andrew, where there have been some more unique or peculiar things that have happened. Number one, what if the market drops? Number two, what if there are some bad tenants? Number three, what if there's some sort of issue with the building? Oh, number four, what if the developer goes under? What if it's hard to get a tenant or the property has bad cash flow? What about the increasing regulation? And what if I've bought a bad investment? Now, look, after looking at these eight things, I can understand if all of you are changing your minds and saying, do I really want to invest in property? Look, the whole reason for doing this webinar tonight is simply to recognise like, hey, Property can be a great investment and you guys wouldn't be here unless you believe that as well. And sure, there are some big gains to be gained from property, but things can go wrong as well. And that's where you want to be prepared for something to go wrong. Not expect everything to go your way 100% of the time, especially if you're investing for a 10 to 15 year period. But I also want to point out that if things could go wrong for you, you want to find your strategies to avoid these things and ways to mitigate it that, hey, if something does go wrong, what am I going to do about it? What's my game plan to respond? And so that's what I really want to go about and tell you all about tonight. Now, we are about to jump into a QA, and a but before we do that, just a wee note from your sponsor. Because many people often come to these, especially first-time uh, attendees of these webinars, say, what do you guys even do? I've just listened to you for an hour, but what do you do? So if it is your first time here tonight, I just want to let you know. Here at Opus, we're what we call property partners. Now, look, that really means three things. Let me tell you. Firstly, we help people plan out their property portfolios. And we've got some pretty cool software I'll show you in a second that helps to do that. The second thing that we do is go and pick properties that fit with that plan. And we primarily focus on new builds here at Opus Partners, so we do have a renovation service as well. So once you've decided, hey, in order to hit my financial goals, I need to buy three properties over the next five years, we go out and help you find those properties. And then finally, you've got to dig into those details and say, let me just make sure that this really is the right investment for me. So those are the three things we do here at Opus. Now, I just need to tell you what you're probably thinking, which is, how much does this all cost? Cool, you know, maybe I'd like a plan. Maybe I'd like you to help me to find some new builds. How much is it going to cost me? Well, one thing that I want to let you know is that actually we don't charge for this service and I'll tell you how that works at the moment because you're probably thinking, well, how do you guys keep the lights on and have your nice studio with producer David here putting on some nice webinars? So how do you keep those lights on? Look, here's exactly how it works. If you as an investor want to come and work with a property partner, 
and put together a portfolio plan, a wealth plan, then they're going to go out and look at properties from 58 different developers. That's how many we have relationships with right now. And once you say, you know what, that's the one for me. That's the development for me. That's the project. That's the property for me. Then that's where we earn a fee from that developer and how we offer that service as on a complimentary basis. Now, here's the thing. If you are keen and think, you know what, these guys maybe, hopefully, talk a bit of sense, wouldn't mind coming in for that portfolio planning session, here's your next step. It is to book in for a complimentary portfolio planning session. And that's where you're going to use our software, My Wealth Plan, to put together a portfolio plan and decide how many properties do I need to buy over X number of years so that I'm able to hit my goals. Now, look, we're going to jump into Q&A, but I just want to give you the opportunity to say, yep, I'm keen for one of those, or you know what, not the right time for me right now. So I'm going to put one final poll across your screen, and I'm going to ask you, are you keen to book in for that portfolio planning session? Now, if the answer's yes, hit the top button. We'll give you a call tomorrow. If the answer's, hey, look, not right for me right now, all good. Click the bottom one, because that way you're not going to get a call. And one other thing I'll just mention as well, that if you're one of our existing investors that we work with and you're keen to come back and see us, if it's time for a review, just click that top one as well. I'll put that across the screen just so that you've got that opportunity to say, yeah, I'm keen or look, not tight for me right now. Now you're about to come over and no, talk no, to me. Yeah, yeah, just don't worry, don't worry. I'll ask you afterwards. He'll ask me afterwards. No, there wasn't an audio problem. I put myself on mute because he was going to whisper things into my ear. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put that there and then we'll jump into Q&A in a moment. But I also just want to mention as well a couple of other things. So if you're here tonight and you're wanting to learn about investing in property, then what are some more ways that you're going to be able to go ahead and keep investing in property? Let me share my... Oh, no, I'm not meant to share my screen, Producer David, am I? Oh, the Because people can see how messy you are with your I desktop. I know, I'm terrible. So you shower once a day, you have a messy desktop, Andrew, let's let's save that, that our, our couple's bickering for later. So next step for you, listen to the podcast. If you don't already, episode 936 went live today. We are very close to our thousandth episode. They are 10 to 15 minutes-ish every single day. And again, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody here tonight who is a podcast listener who comes along. We really do appreciate it. Second thing, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We release two new videos every single week and producer David does a great job putting these out uh, and <laughs> Jake who is also in our content team makes me pull these silly faces for the YouTube thumbnails. And the last thing, and this is something quite new for us that we've been doing for the last five weeks I think, is private property. Now most of you should already be signed up for this and you'll be getting this but this is Andrew's private newsletter which gets sent out every Thursday afternoon and we put together a whole heap of information about what's happening in the property market right now, what are some things that property investors need to be thinking about? And we also include a whole heap of graphs. Now, one thing, one reason that I really like that one, Andrew, is that we write it literally on Thursday morning. So, it's <laughs> and so, and so just to give you an idea of our week, Monday is our podcast. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of bickering that that day. Then Tuesdays are often webinars or an event, so there's a lot of bickering that day. Wednesdays uh, normally pretty pretty normal day, and Ed and I'll have lunch together and and say we love each other again and then Thursday morning it screams at me to write private property. What are we going to write about this week? What are we going to do? Um, but I like it because it's current because we write it in the morning, goes out in the afternoon uh, so it's really really up and to date. And how do people subscribe? 
By that, you all you do is by being on this webinar, you'll be getting it. As long as, as long as you're not unsubscribed from our emails, you'll be getting that. So that's really positive. Now let's come across to the Q and A section now, Andrew. I just want to say thanks for everyone's support. There's lots of um, lots of nice feedback um, uh, from people, uh, podcast listeners, and and some people saying that they're working with a few of the property partners and getting great service. So oh, thank, that's really thank you. positive. Thank you, everyone. Always good to hear that. Um, let's right. jump into some of the Q and A then. All right, Q and A. So I'll bring them up here. I've saved them here. <sighs> let's start with anonymous. Oh no, uh, let's start with Jason, which is an easy one. Um, what what does Opus stand for? Um, which is a great question. So um, when I started the company, Jason, we kicked around different um, ideas. This is um, uh, before Ed's time, and. Um, Opus is actually Latin for wealth. So uh, what we decided was we were going to be uh, people's wealth partners where the, the company was designed to partner with uh, just regular Kiwis to be able to build their wealth. And we do that through property. So that's the answer to that. Uh, right, Werner, a good friend of mine, has asked, what are property prices going to do? So I'll give that one to you, Ed. Well, they're going to go up, down, or stay the same. <laughs> no, that's our favourite one. Look, I actually think that generally they're going to go down a wee bit. That's what's going to happen. And that is why we're excited about creating deals right now. But the question is, to what degree are they going to go down? Now, what's really important to understand is that they're not going to go down all the same rate absolutely everywhere. Now, let me give you what I mean by that. There are some areas in the country that have seen such astronomical price growth, house price growth recently, that they're relatively overvalued. They're more expensive than I think they should be right now. And I've got some data to back it up. It's all on our website. So an area like Manawatu, Wangadui, an area like kind of just north of Wellington, I'm talking about live-in here, an area like Gisborne, all those places, way overvalued. I think those are the areas that are really going to be susceptible to a decline in house prices and one that's going to be uh, felt by people there. Conversely, places like Canterbury, places like Taranaki, places like Blenheim, which are a bit undervalued at the moment, they're going to have more robust property markets because they're cheaper than where I would expect them to be compared to the New Zealand house price. Well, I've got lots of models about this. So I think that while we might see a decline generally, there are going to be some areas that aren't going to decline that much. There are going to be some areas that are really going to face the brunt of it and will take a while to recover. So I think those are the key things that I'm thinking about. What's the next question that you found, um, I've Andrew? I've got one here, which is, went unconditional on a new build a couple of months ago with it being ready mid-next year. How bad of a situation is this to have put myself in, uh, maxed out lending potential due to single income, and worried about the issues? Um, that, that sounds like it's probably causing you a bit of sleepless nights. So the first thing I would say is, hopefully it's not. If if it is, um, and, and even if you haven't dealt with one of our team, we'd probably be happy to have a chat to you um, and just kind of discuss what your options are because, look, at the end of the day, we just want people to, we, we just want to educate investors of New Zealand to make good decisions. Um, without knowing your details, my advice would be, don't, Try not to stress about it because if you start stressing about it, that's when you make the rash decision to sell and potentially crystallise a bad situation if if that is the case. But 
the great thing about property is time heals it all. Even if you bought the worst rental property in the worst area, if you hold it for a long period of time, you still make money, generally speaking. So I think the key thing is um, just just maybe take a bit of a breather. Um, there's always people here to help. Um, so if you if you do want to have a chat to someone, flick me an email, andrew.nickel at uh, opuspartners.co.nz, and we can have a bit more of a um, chat about you your specific situation but for anyone that is worried because there's all the stuff in the media just stop buying the newspaper seriously i think the other thing though is sometimes you will max out your lending right now i'm pretty maxed out i'm trying to find ways that i'm going to be able to borrow more in the future and there are some strategies that you're going to be able to do that but at some point you often will max out your lending that's not necessarily a bad situation to be in as long as you're finding ways that at what point in the future can I continue to invest? Now, there is a great one from John here who's asked, are you planning on releasing an audio oh, book we've been talking uh, version? about yes. So, yes, we are going to do that, John. And I am going to confirm that it, I'm, I've put my hand up to say I'm happy to record some You're of gonna it. You're going to do it. Are you going to record some of it? Oh, you've put me on the spot, haven't you? I have. Uh, of course I will, Ed. Great, thank you. If that's you. what you want. It's recorded now, you can hold him to it. I think at least some of your stories. There are some great ones in there about finding tadpoles. We'll leave that for the book. Now, there was a great question about a revolving credit that... Uh, oh, so uh, someone asked if they can get one if you're borrowing uh, the maximum. So you can't borrow a revolving credit against the new property that you're purchasing, generally speaking. So if you're borrowing 80% against the new build investment and the balance is coming against your house or other rental properties, the revolving credit component has to come, oh, you want to see my face, the revolving credit has to come from the other securities to be able to make that work. <laughs> now, the next thing that I want to talk about and answer comes from Karen, who says, is the 12-month defect period only for new builds? Yes. Oh, so 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 uh, yes, it is uh, only available for new builds. If you buy an existing rental property, um, a property that's already there, uh, you don't get those kind of warranties. Um, Connor Stewart asked, um, "Who's the best developer to work with?" Now, Connor, I think works for Williams Corporation because he hit you up about your numbers for the nine hundred fifteen thousand before. So I googled him because uh, I thought that was an interesting one. So Connor, welcome to the webinar. Um, uh, uh, his numbers, um, I do think he's right. I wrote down on his thing. Email Connor about. Uh, the Williams Corporation pack that you downloaded. We weren't going to say who it was, but since you've joined us, Connor, and hit him up, I am. Um, in terms of developers to work with, I don't think there's any best developer. We do have a uh, list of the top seven developers that you might not have heard of on our website. Um, and I think we did a webinar. Ex yep, exclusively we did a on whole that. webinar about our top seven developers that you've never heard of. So I think that was a really good one because while you often get a whole heap of advertising in your Facebook feed and you think, God, there's only three developers in New Zealand. There is a lot of really great developers, obviously 58 if we're working with them. And I'll just refer you to that blog article, which is on the website, and also the webinar recording, also on the yep. website, which is a really good one. Now, the next one that I want to see, what are the... And, oh, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. Tupita, uh, no, I've said it wrong, sorry, uh, has asked, what are the interest rates likely to be for 2023? Oh, now I've, I've, I've read it out, now I have to answer. <laughs> I was like, what? This is going to be a good one, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, what I would say is that we are looking at that the OCR is going to probably go up kind of somewhere between two to four times. So we're probably going to see the OCR increase about 0.5% to Just 1%. When you say two to four times, you don't mean two to four times its current rate. You mean... No, 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 no. Be, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, two no. to four increases. I, need to, I, I, yeah. I mean two to four increases. So we're probably looking at somewhere between, say, 
uh, 0.5% and I'm going to say 1.5%. There we go. What's next that's coming up for you, Andrew? Uh, where's the pro- where's uh, where's the property cycle at right now? Just in your opinion, Ed, give Phoebe an answer. Oh, the trouble with that, Phoebe, is that it actually depends on which region you're yes, looking but at. That, I thought you could lead into some of the tools that we use. Well, look, Phoebe, let me share my screen for you because you seem yep. like a nice person. Hopefully, you're a podcast listener um, because I want to talk about my favourite graph that I use all of the time. I'm just going to bring it up so that I can then share my screen for you. And then we can have a little look-see. So I'm going to share that now. It's dangerous when you let me take the reins, Andrew. So uh, here Gemma, is... Gemma's got to, while you're doing that, Gemma, Gemma's asked, what's an ideal return on investment percentage for Christchurch in Auckland at the moment? Um, look, very rule of thumb. Um, uh, somewhere between 200 and 250 probably for Christchurch at the moment, if you're using all of my normal assumptions, which are pretty conservative, and somewhere around the 300 mark for Auckland would probably be my rule of thumb. So I've just got your Phoebe here now on uh, on our website and there's such a great section under the NZ Property Market where we've got a page on the top cities and all of the regions here. And I've spent quite a bit of, t- of money, of Andrew's money, on um, data about where are each region in its property cycle. And the one that I really want you to take a look at is this one here. Every single page has it, by the way, so you can look at it for every region. And this kind of shows you the property cycle. Where have uh, has a region been overvalued? Where has it been undervalued? So what this basically says is, you know what? Canterbury house prices over the long term, they're around about 87% of New Zealand's average house price. Ballpark. So sometimes, though, Canterbury house prices are above that average. Sometimes they're below that average. At the moment, they're quite significantly below that, but catching up. And so this tells me, look, Canterbury, I think we've still got some room for growth here. Now, I just want to show you and compare that with the Manawatu-Wanganui region, which is pretty overvalued at the moment. So let me just scroll down here, and I'll show you my graph. Hey, look, last time I calculated it, it was, which is at the end of last year, about 9% above its long-term average. So this says to me, Look, Manawatu, Wanganui, maybe not the place I'd be investing right now. I'll also show you Gisborne because that's a really, and this is just going to turn into me going through every single I one. I know it is. But, uh, but, but indulge me for a moment, team, because it's actually quite a bit of fun. Um, Gisborne here, bit overvalued. So that's where I think, you know, it's still at its peak. We're probably not going to see a lot of growth there into the near future. Now, Andrew, what else are you seeing? What other questions coming up for you? Uh, sorry, I was, I was uh, uh, a sunset clause. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I gave you all this time to I know, go ahead. I, just, I was reading some of the interesting comments. Um, so let me answer this one. Uh, over are you here. challenging sunset clauses from developers in the market? So. Um, uh, if Larish, I think is how you say that, probably not. Uh, sorry, that was my best attempt. Um, one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is. Um, squeezing developers on all terms not just not just the price because the price is important but it's by no means everything so um, if I can get a um, better spec or a, um, a better contract all of these kind of things the bulls in your court as a purchaser now so we are really using that and our and our um, volume to be able to kind of get better terms on everything 
Now, Belinda has asked a really good question, which is, is it better to buy a growth or a yield property first? So one that's potentially going to have positive cash flow or one that's going to grow in value more quickly, but potentially negative cash flow up front, depending on how you structure it. Belinda, usually what we say is if you've got the choice, your growth property is really what you want to be looking for first. Now, the reason behind that is it all comes down to bank lending. So let's say that you could afford a property right now. Maybe you could afford two from the bank, which would be really great. But what happens if the bank changes their policy? Usually, if you want to uh, purchase a property, we'd recommend growth because what happens if you're not able to buy the growth later on? Generally, growth properties provide overall a larger return. The reason behind that is that the capital growth is what tends to build most of your wealth and property investment. So it's really about saying, look, if you've got a choice, tend to go for growth first, use yield later to complement that because what happens if the bank doesn't let you purchase that next property. That's really the thinking behind it. Now, let's come across to the next one. I saw a great one for, about uh, principal and interest. It comes from Kathy. Now, Kathy's asked, would principal and interest be an option if no other, oh, if there was no other mortgage that you have? So you've already paid off your personal home loan, or maybe you're a rent fester or a renter landlord. Would that be an option, or is it never worthwhile? Look, it absolutely can be worthwhile in that case. The reason we often say pay down your personal mortgage first is A, to make your own home more secure, and then secondly as well, for tax reasons. Because you don't have any deductibility on your own home, generally it's cheaper to pay down your own home first before paying down your investment debt. But if you've got no personal debt, then paying down your investment debt could definitely be the right thing for you. Now, Andrew, you didn't do that, though, when you back when you were a rent fester. Oh, no, you no, put no, everything no. on interest uh, only. No, and that's because I want to own as many houses as possible. So in order to do that, I need to keep my cash flow as strong as possible. Now, if, if my goal was to own three properties and I bought those three properties and I was carrying on renting, absolutely you pay down principal or you'd use an offset facility so you still had access to the cash. But uh, me personally, if I want to grow my portfolio, I need to keep the cash flow as strong as uh, humanly possible so I don't have to top up any more than I need to. I don't need the compulsory savings. I can trust myself. And then what I do is I just buy the next one, buy the next one. I use any positive cash flow to buy the next one. Great. Oh, there's a great one from Maurice here that I just want to answer. What is DTI? Debt to income ratio. So this is a piece of regulation that we probably expect to come in in about 12 to 18 months time. Now, this puts a limit on how much you can borrow compared to your income. Now, this is an additional layer of regulation which is going to slow down the amount of lending that banks can actually go out and allow borrowers to take out. What next have you got uh, on your Priscilla list, Andrew? Said, what if you got lots of equity, but you don't have a lot of cash, I guess she means income, to service? So um, a lot of investors that are in that sort of situation, if they, assuming you can get the lending, which you may have to go to a non-bank lender, maybe, but assuming you can get the lending, what you might do is you might buy a combination of properties like Ed was talking about before, maybe one growth property, but then a yield property to help fund the growth property. So the yield property generates good income, but gives you lower capital growth. That that positive income will pay for the higher growth property that'll cost you a little bit in terms of contributions. Or maybe you just need to focus on yielding properties. Oh, Jake, you've got a great question here. Jake's asked, is it worth buying a two-bedroom new build or... Should I hold off and purchase a three-bedroom oh. townhouse? Oh. Now, Jake, 
Let me tell you, I've got an article for you here, buddy. By the way, we pump out three articles a week on this uh, on this website. You come up here to learn to invest and then all articles. And I actually stole a journalist from Stuff Lane, who is just just amazing, by the way, um, uh, who who is just, just wonderful and pumps out these articles. I want to show you, I've got to get this out of my way. Otherwise, I have people ringing me. Um, Two-bedroom townhouses, are they a good investment? Now, this is just, oh, I love this one so much because we go through, well, what does a two-bedroom townhouse cost? Uh, do two-bedroom townhouses increase in value as fast as other townhouses or standalone properties? Uh, here we've got the capital growth rate in Auckland for uh, houses. Here we've got it for townhouses. But let's also compare two-, three-, and four-bedroom townhouses. Now, do you know what? This surprised me. I actually was I was floored when I saw this because what you can see is this tends to suggest that two-bedroom townhouses, at least from about 2010, increased in value more quickly or had a lot a higher long-term growth rate than three or four-bedroom townhouses. Now, the reason I, I was quite surprised at this is I actually thought it would be around the other way. Now, look, I have some disclaimers for this, so I'm happy to go into it if you ask about it. But I do not necessarily think that you should exclusively buy two-bedroom townhouses at the expense of three- or four-bedroom townhouses just because yeah. this graph happens to show that perhaps they get slightly higher capital growth. I've got a lot, a lot, a lot of caveats to this. Um, but I think that this is... Surprising that it wasn't the other way around. I've also got some other great graphs here about where townhouses are being built, uh, how many are being rented out. This one will actually surprise you as well. There are many more two-bedroom townhouses being rented in Auckland uh, compared to one or three beds. Look, I'll just refer you to that, mate, and have a read of that. See what's right for you, Jake. I've also got one coming out this week, which is all about three-bedroom townhouses, reviewing those as well, just helping people trying to make a really informed decision. What's catching your eye now, Andrew? Uh, right, so we'll do one each uh, to finish up. Um, Craig, Craig's asked... Um, Craig Newbury? No. No, Craig's asked, with a significant pushback from the bank to purchase another property due to triple CFA, new regulations, yada, 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 um, we're pretty conservative, not keen to go uh, non-bank lenders, too risky, question mark. Um, Craig, a couple of things there that jump into my mind. Number one is it might be a good time to review your portfolio. So a lot of investors that I'd been working with prior to my new role, um, I'd actually be putting through our portfolio analysis uh, um, service where we actually look at, okay, what does your portfolio look like over the next 15 years? And then are there any underperforming investments there? If we sold one, replaced it with two new, does that offset the tax changes? Does that put you in a better lending position? And often by selling off some of the duds, you can actually get lending to, to borrow, which might keep you at a bank. But if you do have to go to a... Um, if you do have to go to a non-bank lender, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, it's not like the finance company days where uh, pr prior to the GFC you had finance companies that were doing really high-risk lending, low-doc, no-doc, all those kind of things. Um, normally speaking, you know, your ResiMax of the world, they're close to bank and their interest rates are close to bank as well. So their policies mean that they just don't have to adhere the same um, uh, rigour to the triple CFA regulation. Great answer. Um, thanks, Ed. Now, is there anything, any, uh, for our last question, is 
Oh, Have just you got on that, one rev- that's- on that review or that portfolio analysis, um, uh, Toby, who's uh, my protege, has now taken over that role. So if anyone's interested in that service, um, you can email uh, andrew.nickel at opuspartners.co.nz and copy enjoy at opuspartners.co.nz and Joy will sort that out. And, and Toby is so much better than me. He's amazing. He's, tra- he's trained by the best. He's so good. <laughs> now, was there anything else that caught your eye for the last question, Andrew? No, I was too busy waffling on. No, that's going to be a no then. Um, so the last question that I saw that kind of caught my eye, and I will just quickly find, uh, pull it up so that I can have a wee chit-chat about it, uh, was all about... Oh, how does a student loan impact the amount you can borrow for a property? So obviously, if you've got a student loan, what's going to happen? You've got to make repayments against it if you're earning more than about... 20.2k a year. So if you've got a student loan, it can really impact your servicing. But whether it's going to impact whether you are able to borrow or not comes down to whether income or your deposit is the main thing holding you back. Now, for people earlier on in their property investment journey, and I'm assuming that's you because you've got a student loan, generally what I see is it's deposit holding you back. You don't have enough equity to be able to go and purchase that investment property. So in that case, if equity is your limiting factor, your student loan might not actually impact what you can borrow at all. But let's say that income was your limiting factor. That's the thing holding you back from being able to invest in property. Well, then your student loan is actually potentially going to have quite a large impact on what you are able to borrow. Now, there are some ways to get around this. So one option is to take out some sort of other debt consolidation loan or something along those lines in order to be able to pay down that student loan off straight away. The reason that you might do something like that, even though you'd go from a no-interest loan to an interest-bearing loan, is quite simply that with a student loan, it's 12% of your income above that certain threshold. Whereas if you are able to get a different structured loan over a longer term, over some, some some different terms within that, that's when you might be able to spread it out and you'll have a lesser payment. But that's what we call the debt destroyer strategy that you might like to consider. Just talk with a mortgage broker about that is what I'd recommend because you've got to figure out what's your limiting factor and are you going to be put in a better position or potentially a worse position by going ahead and paying that off. So that's the thing there. Now, last thing that I just want to mention is thank you so much for coming along to this webinar tonight. We always have a great lot of fun here at Property Live when we do these. We're going to be back next month. And something that I want to let you in on is a little secret, which is soon not to be a secret at all, uh, to help do something different for the next one. We are going to have a live studio audience here in Christchurch. Is that for the next one? For the next one. The next one, we are going to have 20 people here as a live studio audience. Uh, That's at the May webinar. So if you're in Christchurch, then keep an eye out because we'll be inviting you to come join us live at these webinars. I like to think it's going to be like seven days, the TV show. <laughs> Only less funny. Well, well, no, it'll be much more funny. I like to think that we have, well, there'll be some good mortgage jokes in there. So we're going to have a lot of fun and appreciate you being here. We'll see you guys soon. See ya.